Good morning. Merry Christmas. Isn't it a joy to be together with God's people to sing his praises during this season? As we consider this passage that Tom's just read, 1 John 1, together, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the rhythms of the year, for the seasons where we can focus specifically on things that are true all the time, but where we need special reminders of what you've done as a God of love and mercy and grace to reach down to us, to reveal yourself to us, to save us from our sin and, and call us into a right relationship with yourself. Thank you that this passage declares that to us. And I pray that for each one of us, you would do work in our hearts and minds to help us to become more joyful messengers of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1982, something happened that would become a distinguishing feature of my life. At the tender age of six, I got my very first migraine headache. And it was a textbook case. The need for complete darkness and quiet and cold compresses. Unbelievable pain and violent nausea. And from that point, all the way through college, I would get a migraine about once every year or so. And so I didn't take medication because they came too infrequently. But then in my early 20s, my migraines became increasingly frequent until I averaged about two to three per week. But thankfully, my doctor prescribed a drug that would wipe out just about every headache. It was the very first prescription that he wrote. And that medication has changed my life. There are about over 70 migraine medications on the market. Some of them have terrible side effects. Some only work some of the time. And many sufferers still haven't found a medication that works for them, and so they have to ride out every single headache. Migraine pain is so bad that sufferers are eager to share what works for them. They're eager to talk about their medication. And that's why I love talking about my medication, because I have one that works nearly without fail. I calculated this week that I have had about a thousand migraines in my life. And since I've been on this medication, only six of them have not responded to intervention, and that is remarkable. As a result, I have become a joyful messenger for Fioraset, the drug that I use. <laughs> I am eager to share this good news with any fellow sufferer who might need help. And, and you can't write this stuff, but even as I was writing this sermon and this illustration was already in place, I get a phone call from my sister and she called to ask me about my migraine medication because her headaches have gotten worse. And I'm always happy for people to know that hope for relief is real. Now, as I was awoken by yet another headache last week, my thoughts turned to this passage, 1 John 1. This is what preachers do in the middle of the night. And as I was lying in bed, wincing and waiting for the medicine to kick in, I was overcome with gratitude that I even have a medication that's so reliable. Just imagine enduring the full effects of a thousand headaches or more. And so I often call my migraine medication a lifesaver. And then lying there, I got to thinking... How much greater is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which actually saved my life? And so why then is it so much easier for me to proclaim the good news of my medication with fellow migraine sufferers than it is to share the good news of Jesus with fellow sinners? 
Maybe for you it's not a medication. Maybe it's a product or a restaurant that you love or a TV show that you love to stream that you just love to tell other people about. And for some reason, we are so happy to share things with others that are good or even great while we keep the best news ever in our back pocket. Why is that? Well, as we consider 1 John verses 1 to 10 together, we'll answer that very question. Christmas is just a week away, and our Advent series this December is called King of Kings. We opened by spending two weeks on the future Advent, the second coming of King Jesus, and the fullness of his future reign and rule. And then last week, uh, Pastor Tom turned to consider the present, the agony of life without Jesus as king. And this week, we contemplate the tremendous blessing of life with him and the joy that we have to share him with others. And so this is the theme of our passage this morning. The life King Jesus offers makes us joyful messengers who pursue holiness together. In 1 John 1, we'll see John's proclamation of Jesus' incarnation, this truth that God came to earth in the flesh. We'll see why John chose to write this letter about the incarnation. And then we'll consider the core message that Jesus, the word of life, proclaimed when he came. So as we open 1 John together, let's start with the very beginning of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, 1 John is the longest of the three inspired letters we have in Scripture written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, the man who also wrote the gospel bearing his name. And John likely wrote 1 John toward the end of the first century to churches in Asia Minor and what is today modern-day Turkey. False teachers had begun to infiltrate these uh, churches, which had led to false beliefs and ungodly behavior and even division in the body in those local churches. And one of the key areas that the false teachers were spreading was a denial of Jesus' incarnation. That is, a rejection that God had become flesh in the person of Jesus. This was the question they were asking. How could the creator, the supreme deity of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, condescend himself and become united with an impure physical body in the form of a man? And so 1 John is fitting for us at Christmas time, the season of the year and the Christian calendar when we focus our hearts and our minds on the wonder and the splendor and the glory and the majesty and the awe of the incarnation. It's a miracle wrought by God for his holy purposes. And John starts off right off the bat by defending this beautiful and central doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus, the eternal son of God, was made flesh, flesh and he dwelt among us. John establishes the core message of this letter in the, these opening verses. And to do so, he uses a series of relative clauses indicated by the repetition of the English word, which. And he uses them to describe the magnificent miracle of the incarnation. 
starting with these very first words, which emphasize what we call the preexistence of Christ. That which was from the beginning. The Son of God has existed since time began, even before time began. He has always existed. He has never not existed. This is a key aspect of the Incarnation. Because it helps us to see the eternal nature of the person of Christ. He wasn't some baby that Jesus, that God just tabbed to be the Messiah. He is God's son sent to take on flesh and accomplish his father's redemptive purposes. And we see this echoed in the opening words of John's gospel. John chapter 1, the first three verses He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Word, or what John calls in this letter, the Word of life. At the very beginning, He was with God, and he was and is God, the second person of the Trinity, creator and not creature. He existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit, and then he was made manifest. He was born to us as a baby. That's what the next statements help us to see. Verse 2, the life, that is the life of Jesus, was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John calls Jesus here the eternal life because the Son of God is eternal in both directions. It hurts your mind when you think about it. And his manifestation to the world began with the miraculous signs that accompanied his birth in Bethlehem. Announcements by angels, a new star in the heavens, and the fulfillment of age-old prophecies even down to the unassuming town of his birth. This manifestation of Jesus' life continued with his three-year ministry starting around the age of 30. His sinless perfection, his authoritative teaching of God's truth, the countless miracles that he performed, and even the death he died, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension into heaven. God did not hide his son from the world, but he manifested him. He revealed him in the flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had an actual body. And John tells us in verse 1 that we, that is he and his fellow apostles, saw him with their own eyes and they heard what he said and they touched him with their own hands. This Jesus, the word of life. And he writes later in this letter, chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John is proclaiming to, he's testifying to, the first century Christians of Asia Minor and by extension to us through the Holy Scriptures that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word of Life, came to the earth in the flesh. And he's proclaiming the arrival of a king, King Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. John and the apostles experienced Christ with their own senses. They knew him to be a real man. But for those of us since, the events of Christ's life 
the meaning of his death, the power of his resurrection, his awe-inspiring ascension, the promise of his return have been passed down from generation to generation by proclamation, by testimony, preserved for us in the passages of God's word just like this one. Jesus, the word of life, was manifested. But those who knew him in the flesh proclaimed this. They testified to the fact that he appeared. Why? Why testify? Why risk your own life to proclaim the word of life as the early apostles did and as many Christians have done around the world ever since? Well, John proceeds to tell us the very reason for his writing, the purpose of this proclamation in verse 3. He writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now John actually provides two reasons for his proclamation, for his writing of this letter. And the first is so that his readers might have fellowship with him and his fellow apostles. Now the church where I grew up would have a regular fellowship hour after the Sunday service. I think it probably happened about monthly. And I loved fellowship hour because that was the time where I could see just how much punch I could drink. You know, the kind where they would put sherbet in it. I loved that punch. And I would see how many cookies I could eat while my mom chatted away with other members of the church. Now, I'm certain that expressions of true Christian fellowship occurred while I surreptitiously snuck sweets from those tables. But the word fellowship has a deep meaning that gets lost when we use it in this way. The Greek word translated for fellowship is koinonia, and it refers to the intimate association, the precious quality of relationship, the close communion that can exist between individuals within Christian community. And it's a spiritual reality that exists between all Christians because of the communion that we have with God the Father through God the Son by the indwelling presence of God the Spirit. And John emphasizes that in this verse. Any fellowship that we have with one another is merely a reflection of, an extension of the communion that we have with God. And this is why we sometimes use the word communion to describe the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate this morning together. By partaking together of the bread that represents Jesus' body given for us, by sharing the cup that represents Jesus' blood shed for us, we are testifying to what unites us and unifies us first and foremost with God, and thus by extension unifies us as Jesus' followers. And what unites us is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died and that he rose again. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper highlights the primacy of our relationship with Christ in this gospel. And he writes this, The Christian gospel is not merely that Jesus died and rose again, and not merely that these events appease God's wrath, forgive sin, and justify sinners, and not merely that this redemption gets us out of hell and into heaven, but they bring us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as our supreme, all-satisfying, and everlasting treasure. 
Certainly the gospel includes all those things. But if we miss the fellowship, the communion, the intimate relationship that we gain with God through Christ, then we miss the ultimate purpose of Christ's incarnation. Through his perfect sacrifice, he's removed the barriers of our sins that prevent the kind of relationship that God intended to have with us as humanity from the very beginning. And when we trust in the word of life, made manifest to and proclaimed by the apostles who saw him in the living flesh, we can have true communion with God and with every other person who calls on the name of Jesus. This is one purpose for John's writing fellowship. But there's a second in verse 4. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. The second reason that John provides for his proclamation by pen is so that his joy may be complete. He wants his readers to believe what he's writing, which focuses on the incarnation. And he wants them to respond to the good news of Jesus with faith or to have their already existing strength existing faith strengthened because this will bring him joy. Now, witnessing a life changed by the gospel is absolutely thrilling. I still remember the very first time I experienced it for myself. I was in college. I I sat down with a bunch of friends in the cafeteria for what I thought was going to be another dinner. And over the course of that meal, it became clear that something serious and spiritual was taking place. And those of us who were Christians shared the gospel with our friend Lisa, and we had this overwhelming sense that God was doing something profound in that very moment. It was a feeling I had never experienced before. It became clear that there was a divine transaction that was taking place. And so we all prayed together, and that night, Lisa gave her life to the Lord. And we were all overwhelmed with joy. I remember the joy that we experienced as we walked out of that cafeteria. And I'm still overwhelmed with that joy because to this day, Lisa is a faithful follower of Jesus. Now, the specific word joy here is so important for us because happiness is circumstantial, but joy is deep-seated supernatural contentment that is irrespective of our situation. Christians can have joy in the worst of circumstances because of the intimate relationship that we have with our Creator who uses those circumstances to draw us ever closer to Himself. The Christian life isn't always marked by happiness. In fact, we've been promised suffering, but joy True joy is an ever-present possibility because the deeper our fellowship with God grows, the more content we can be with whatever it is that he brings us. There's a reason that joy is so closely tied to the Christmas story. The angels announced to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we sing joy to the world because even in the midst of the most difficult and challenging circumstances, it's possible for anyone who will hear and respond in faith to have a relationship with the one true God. Isn't that awesome? And that relationship makes abiding joy possible. 
That's why some of the greatest expressions of joy that take place in this room happen when someone gets baptized. There's just this overflow of the joy that we all have experienced in our collective walks with Christ. And we all know that trusting in Jesus doesn't mean no more pain in this life. It means that we have a comforter who will walk with us when we face that pain. So if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your confidence in Christ, I want you to know why Christians seem so eager to talk to you about Jesus and invite you to consider him too. Perhaps they even invited you to this service this morning. The reason why is because we want you to experience the fellowship and communion with us and ultimately with God. Our prayer is that you will take advantage of this Christmas season filled with conversations about joy, that you'll contemplate this good news for yourself because the gospel is good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has come. Now, John has defended the incarnation of Jesus, at least initially. And he's explained why he's writing this letter, namely so that readers might experience fellowship with him and the apostles and with God. And so that he, as the writer, as the apostle, might experience greater joy. And now John turns to the core message that Jesus, the word of life, proclaimed during his time on earth. And he does this in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, at first blush, this might seem like an overly simplistic explanation of the message that Jesus delivered. But when you think about it, light is a wonderful metaphor for God. No metaphor is perfect, but it's a wonderful metaphor because light and darkness cannot coexist. They're polar opposites. True darkness is the very absence of light, and wherever light shines, darkness becomes impossible. And so light the very first fundamental property that God creates in Genesis 1 is an apt illustration of God's holiness and his righteousness. In him there is no sin, no unrighteousness whatsoever. He is holy. Now, certainly Jesus had much to say about God. So how then is this the central message of Christ as John proclaims? Well, holiness is a primary aspect of God's character. It, it speaks of his otherness as creator. He's wholly unlike anything that which he has created. He is pure in all his perfections of, as God. And this is why Paul describes Jesus in 1 Timothy 6 verse 16 as the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lo lords who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Just as we cannot approach the sun without being consumed by the heat of its light, we cannot approach God without being consumed by his holiness. Our sin prevents us. And so Messiah, King Jesus, came to earth and he bridged the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity, the, the capstone of his creation that had fallen into rebellion and rejected him and his reign and his rule. And because God is light and Jesus is God, the promise of his first advent understandably uses repeatedly the metaphor of light. That's why we talk so much about light at the incarnation during Christmas time. 
The prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, appears in Isaiah 9.1. And in the verses that follow, God makes this promise. Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. And then God tells us through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out with joy, leaping like calves from the stall. We see here the intertwining of light and joy. And then Jesus came. And John in particular focuses on this light-dark motif that runs all throughout the scriptures. And he focuses on both in this letter and in his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 4. In him, John writes, that is, in Jesus the word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus goes on to call himself the light of the world for this very reason. And then he invited his listeners to believe his message, to trust in him, and thus become children of light themselves. The Apostle John is establishing a relationship between the metaphor of light to represent God and his truth and the life that Jesus offers us through his death and resurrection. And when we trust in him, God transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, and we become children of light. But why then do we continue to struggle with darkness? What is the relationship that followers of Jesus, those who have trusted in his perfect righteousness and his death in their place and his conquest over death through the resurrection and sin, what is the relationship with the believer in sin? Well, starting in verse 6, John addresses this question, at least in part, And he provides two claims, two false claims that Christians might be tempted to believe as it pertains to our sin. And then he offers two counters of truth so that we might be encouraged to walk in the light with one another in true community. So let's start with the first claim in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we claim to have fellowship with Jesus, the word of life, the communion with God that he's made possible through his incarnation, and yet we persist in behavior that clearly counters his word. In effect, we lie about the reality of what it means to be children of light. We send a message about Jesus, but we send the wrong message about him. Either we lie with our words because we have not actually been regenerated by his grace, or we lie with our deeds because we allow our sin to persist unaddressed. But John has a counter to this temptation in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Professing Christ necessitates a life that matches that profession. Of course, we're all incapable of eradicating our sin in this life together. But John makes it clear that the Christian life is marked by cooperating with God as he reveals areas of darkness in our life and by bringing them to light. We submit our sin to his sanctifying and purifying grace. And in so doing, we experience the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And as a result, those of us who have been cleansed experience fellowship with one another as fellow Christians. Now, I mentioned at the beginning my ongoing battle with migraines and how they had started to increase in my 20s. What I didn't know at the time was that the increase coincided with my switch from sugar and 
sugar in my soda and coffee to artificial sweetener. And artificial sweeteners are a key trigger for migraines. And so every day I was unknowingly inflicting the cause for my headaches. And it wasn't until I married Ashley that she suggested fake sugar might be to blame. And I kind of brushed her off and said, that can't be it. And then I stopped using fake sugar. I went cold turkey. And I went from having weekly migraines to having none. I went nine months before I had my next headache. Ashley brought my failure to light. <laughs> and once she did, I had a choice. I could ignore the truth or I could obey it. I'll let you guess which I did. <laughs> and so it is with our sin. Once we recognize that something we're doing violates God's word, either because we read it for ourselves or for, because someone tells us about it, we can persist in that sin or we can experience the cleansing that comes from submitting that sin to God so that we might experience the freedom from its enslavement. We might be tempted to willfully persist in our rebellion and still claim that we're Christians, but John tells us that if we do, we lie. We do not practice the truth. There's a, a second temptation related to our sin in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So one temptation is to say we're followers of Jesus and yet live lives that do not reflect his holiness. But a second temptation is to say that we have no sin. Or as it goes on to say in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now to say that we have no sin or that we have not sinned is to deny the need for Jesus' incarnation in the first place. It eliminates the very need for his death and resurrection altogether. And if we make this claim that we have not sinned or we do not sin, we have not received the truth of the gospel. Why do you need the gospel if you don't sin? His word is not in us. And we effectively claim that God is a liar because he has already declared there is none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the counter that John provides for this lie in verse 9 is this. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here we see the expectation that we'll continue to sin. John is expecting that we will. And we do, don't we? But God has made a way for us to experience not only the forgiveness of those sins, but also the restoration of fellowship when we do. And that's the gift of confession. Confession acknowledges the wrong and lays claim to the solution that God has provided through the blood of his son, Jesus. And we can bring any sin to him, no matter how serious it might be. Jesus is eager to forgive us if we're in him. He will not bend a bruised reed. He will not extinguish a smoldering wick. His blood can cleanse any sin. Now, the life King Jesus offers makes us joyful messengers who pursue holiness together. And as we close and consider how we might apply this passage, there are three words from it that I want us to consider again more carefully. Joy, light, and fellowship. The first is joy. Our joy is incredibly powerful in authenticating the gospel. I want you to listen 
uh, to the words of evangelism expert Michael Green, an Anglican who's now with the Lord in heaven. This is what he wrote. It has been well said that Christianity is more often caught than taught, but by our rationalism and formalism, by the absence of radiant and carefree celebration in our ranks, we have not had the magnetic impact that Jesus undoubtedly possessed. We've hidden him in doctrine and churchianity. If people saw deep, unselfish joy in us as Christians, they would be predisposed to listen when we explain where that joy comes from. Life is hard. And fall affects every person on this planet. But when we know the truth of the gospel deep down in our soul as our only hope for forgiveness, as our only hope for eternal life, our only hope for communion with the one true triune God, then we can know true abiding joy that helps us face anything. And that joy in a broken, fallen world, it stands out to others. Our joy opens the door to share the gospel as the source of that joy. But we can't manufacture joy. It's a byproduct of communion with the King who gave his very life for us. And so we treasure his word every day. We pray to him every day. We walk together with others every day and we tell this good news to others and we do it with joy because guess what? It's the best news there is to tell. The best. Joy. The second word of application is light. We must know and believe that God is light, that he's perfect in holiness and that his word lays out the standard for, for our lives. And just as our joy communicates something about God's character and God's gospel, so does our behavior. Just like garland reflects the lights on a Christmas tree, so our good deeds adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't live a perfect life, but we can live lives that are committed to the light of God's sanctifying grace. And because of Jesus, we not, need not fear the light and the heat of his holiness because Jesus has borne the punishment for our sin in our place. And that means we can bring our sins to him knowing that he's already paid for them. This means that we can bring any sin to light in the context of our community. And this church family is the perfect place to do that. It's the best I've ever known. It's filled with other people who are simultaneously sinners and saints. People who know what it means to have the light of God's truth shine on the dark corners of sin in our life. We, God is light and that Christian life is, is marked by bringing dark areas of sin to the light, to others, as the word shines on it so that we might experience the warmth and the healing of God's abundant mercy and grace in community with one another. Now, at the beginning of this message, I asked, why is it easier for me to proclaim the good news of my medication with fellow migraine sufferers than it is to share the good news of Jesus with fellow sinners? And one easy answer is that there is no risk in sharing my medication with others. There's always great risk in offending another person or, or affecting our relationship when we share the gospel with another person. It takes courage to share this message of light and joy. 
But isn't the potential for that person to experience true eternal joy in communion with God worth the risk? And aren't we all here because someone else took a risk with us? Yes, we need sensitivity to the Spirit and gentleness in our approach, but we also need courage to declare the good news of Jesus with our words. And courage is strengthened by community, which brings us to the third application of this passage, and that is fellowship. We already have true spiritual communion, spiritual unity, spiritual fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done for us. And we're about to celebrate this communion together with the Lord's Supper. But the covenant that we make when we join this church is in effect to follow Jesus faithfully together. And I want to say that if you're, if you're a Christian who regularly attends services here, but you're not yet a member of the church, I want to encourage you to join us, to become a part of us, to commit to this fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Become a member, forge friendships with others who will walk with you as you pursue holiness. Because when we commit to a local church family, this is what we're doing. We're committing to the refinement that's only possible in the communion that occurs when believers make an agreement, covenant with one another. And as members of this church, what we're doing is we're committing to the light of God's truth. We're saying we believe God's word and we're going to follow it and we're going to follow it together. We commit to encouraging one another to walk in the light as God is light. We open ourselves to the reproof of others as we also promise to correct others who are in error. And there's something incredibly powerful about a group of people coming together and laying claim to this gospel together. Because what we do as people of the light, people of joy, people of the truth, people of the gospel, what we do is we profess to the watching world that it's possible to be sinful and saved people from different backgrounds and different nationalities and different walks of life and different political persuasions to have true spiritual unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's possible. That's what you say when you join a local church family. That's what you say if you're a member of this church. Joy, light, and fellowship. Cherrydale Baptist Church, the life that King Jesus offers makes us joyful members, joyful messengers who pursue God's holiness together. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So this Advent season, let's walk in the light as he is in the light. And let us tell others this great news that Jesus Christ was born and let's do it with joy together. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to understand just how profound it is that you, the God who created all things, would condescend, come to earth as a baby for a purpose, to live the perfect life we could not live, to die in our place, to rise from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to send your spirit so that we might know this reality for ourselves and respond to it in faith. And I pray for every person here, for those that perhaps are hearing this message for the first time, would hear this and respond with faith so that our joy may be complete. 
And I pray for every one of us that we would be committed to be people of the light, people of the truth, faithful, joyful messengers of your son Jesus together. It's in his name we pray. Amen.